tonight is going to be the first of what will be a number of uh, sermons that we'll look at together, Lord willing, out of various portions of the Old Testament. And hopefully they will be representative portions. Some of these will be narratives. Some of these will be from didactic portions of the Old Testament. Some of them will be from poetry. Some will be from wisdom literature, and some will be from prophecies. So we're going to look at the whole gambit of Old Testament literary devices that God has appointed to see how he has breathed out the revelation of Christ in Scripture. And tonight we're going to look at the first of these. We're going to look together at Genesis chapter 2. And for the sake of context, I'm going to begin back in verse 7, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter to verse 25, Genesis, Genesis 2, 7 through 25. Now, what you may or may not know is that Genesis chapter 1 is a bird's eye view of the account of creation, and it gives us the 30,000 foot view. And then going into chapter 2, right at verse 4, there is a a sort of recapitulation where there is now a second and more focused account of creation. And that is sort of the telescope looking in on Adam and everything God is doing with Adam in the garden. They They are not disparate creation accounts. They serve two very specific purposes. One is the creation of all things, and the other that we're looking at tonight is that very focused, very close-up shot of Adam in the garden and everything that God is doing with him in a special way. Now, we've already been told at the end of chapter 1 that God created man and woman in his image, that he gave them that creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the creatures. That is the general account of the creation of man. And now here's the special account of God's dealing with man as he creates him and places him in the garden. And here Moses writes, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havala, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with the flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then if you would turn over to Romans chapter five. We are going to read this short section in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And there the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, uh, one of the great Puritan theologians, Thomas Goodwin, uh, set out an illustration to help people understand that all of human history and all of the experiences of all people can really be bound up in the image of two great giants living on the earth. Goodwin says it's as if there are only two great giants that live on the earth, Adam and Christ, and every single person is hung around the belt of one of them. You are either represented by Adam or you are represented by Christ. All of the scripture can really be distilled down to that parallel. Adam being the representative man, Christ being the second representative man, the last representative man. And all of Christianity is founded on that principle. It it actually makes everything in the Bible very simple. Now, what it doesn't do is it doesn't flesh out all the ways that Adam is a type of Christ. We just read in Romans chapter 5 that Adam is a type of him who was to come. Adam is the first type. He is the prototypical son of God. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you read in uh, Luke's genealogy of Jesus, it goes all the way back to Adam. And Luke says, Adam, the son of God. Adam is God's prototypical son. God created Adam for himself. God created him as the first man. God entered into a very special relationship with Adam in the garden. He put Adam in a very special place. He gave Adam a very special task. And he set Adam to be the representative of all the other image bearers who would come from him. Now, when we we look at the creation account, and we look at the account here in Genesis 2 in specific, there are really three things that come to the forefront The first is that God created man to be his representative image bearer. The second is that God created man to be his prophet, priest, and king in the garden temple. And the third is that God created man to enter into marital union 
to show forth the beauty and glory of what he was going to do in redemptive history. Everything that God is establishing in the garden, he has already determined in himself that in some way, shape, or form, it is going to play into the work of redemption. In this sense, we can say that everything at creation is serving the purposes of redemption even before there's a fall. God is he's setting all the little, all the little stepping stones from Adam to Christ. And he's giving it to us not in explicit statements. This is one of the things that people often miss, that that the Bible is not meant to just be a theological textbook that, that automatically gives you everything. God is embedding into these rich narratives that the theological truths that he is going to develop throughout the rest of the scripture. And the first great truth that we're going to see as we consider the representative man is that Adam is God's image bearer. Now, that's important. Adam is unlike anything else that God has created. You'll remember back in chapter 1 that after God's creative fiats, that after each creative thing that God did in all of the living creatures, it was said that God made each of them according to their kind. But, but when he comes to the creation of man, it is said that he is going to make man after the image of God kind. Man is going to bear the image of God. He is going to be made according to God's kind. He is going to have something special about him. And, and that, as you know, is going to be reflective in man uh, being made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. There is a moral perfection about man. There is a moral dignity about man. Man is at creation reflecting who God is. Um, One of the great books in church history was written by Thomas Boston. It's called Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. And if I could just encourage you to read that opening chapter, there's almost nothing like it in church history. Man in the state of innocence. And, And as Boston speculates what Adam would have been like at creation. He, he says that Adam would have had a, an effulgent glory emanating off of him. I'm 45 this year, and when I look in the mirror, there is not much glory. I did not glow up. There's not a glow. Probably true for most of you. Adam would have emanated the glory of God. He would have had a a splendid glory shining about him because of the perfection he lived in as God's image bearer. Uh, Boston will go on to to mention how when Moses went up on the mountain, you'll remember that the glory of God was shining off of his face, that when he came down, it was still shining off of him. And, And Boston says, can you imagine the glory that Adam would have had a creation? And then God gave Adam a task as his image bearer. He told him to uh, have dominion over the creatures, that one of the things Adam was to do was to exercise dominion and rule so that he would show what God is. God is the ruler over all. And when God creates an image bearer, he gives him a, a subordinate role. As the old writers used to say, Adam becomes God's vice gerent, his is a lieutenant governor, and, and he is there in, in, in the earth, and God has given him rule over everything. The only thing God has not given Adam is a right to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else, 
was under Adam's control. And Adam was to exercise that dominion. Uh, We see that, don't we, in Adam naming the animals. Um, We're told in chapter 2, verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Now, Adam's dominion would have been an interpretive dominion. He wasn't making up names. He wasn't saying, well, I like the name zebra. You're going to be a zebra. He was recognizing in the animals what God had made and was naming them accordingly. He was, he was interpreting God's world, and in that, he was exercising dominion over it. Now, that is going to become important because when we come a post-fall to look at the world, it doesn't look like man has dominion over it. Um, the psalmist in Psalm 8 Reflecting on that creation dignity God conferred on Adam as an image bearer said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You put all things in dominion under him, all sheep and oxen, birds of the air, fish of the sea. You've put everything under him. And, and yet, and yet, we know that everything is not under the dominion of man. And when the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2 comes to reflect on Psalm 8 and, and that original task that God gave Adam in the garden, he, he says after quoting that psalm, now we do not yet see all things put under him. You see, Adam did not fulfill that dominion mandate at creation. In fact, Adam destroyed that dominion mandate very quickly at creation. And everyone who descended from him realizes now that we live in a world that is not under the dominion of man. You know, I am sometimes saddened when I, when I hear well-meaning Christians talking about our role to take dominion of everything. Um, there is only one person who can take dominion of everything, and that is the last Adam, Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of Hebrews 2. Now, we do not yet see all things put under man, but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor through the suffering of death, that he, by the grace of God, may taste death for everyone. You see, Jesus comes as the image of God. This is Paul's point. He is the image of the invisible God because Adam marred that image. Jesus had to come to renew that image. That's the whole whole point of redemption is we need another image bearer who can renew in us the image of God that we lost, who can renew in us knowledge and righteousness and holiness, who can transform us into his character, who can do for us what Adam lost for us. Um, and who can take dominion? You know, it's one of, the, one of the most wonderful meditations that, you know, Adam lost the image of God by his sin and brought sin and misery and death to everyone. And yet Christ being nailed to the tree is how he takes dominion over all things and secures a new heavens and a new earth and renews that image in his people. It's absolutely remarkable. What Jesus is doing right now is he is acting as the last Adam in renewing his image in you based on what he did.
Um, I want us to secondly look at the place and the fact that God put Adam in the garden temple as a prophet, priest, and king. Notice this. Notice verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, God did not form Adam in the Garden of Eden. And that is hugely significant. God created man outside of Eden. John Calvin actually says he created man from the primordial dust to show what a base thing man is in himself. That there's nothing, there's nothing special about man. He made Adam out of just mere dust. And, and, and earth. And, and there was nothing special. It wasn't, it wasn't Garden of Eden earth. It wasn't anything magnificent. And then Calvin says, but then God creates a special place for man. And he takes the man he's made and he puts him in that garden temple. And he gives him a very clear directive. Adam, as the image of God, now serving in a special function in a garden temple, is, is to be God's prophet, priest, and king. He is to minister God's word to Eve and to those who would descend from them. He is to function as the priest in the garden temple. You know, by the way, those words, uh, serve and keep, serve and keep, those Hebrew words in that construct are only used in the Old Testament in one other place, and that is about the priest in the temple. They were to serve and to keep it. They were to guard and protect it. That Adam was to guard and protect the garden sanctuary of God. And then as God's king, he was to rule and reign. And he was to take the borders of the garden out. He was to extend the borders of the garden out so that the whole earth would be the garden. Where God would dwell with righteous image bearers. If I can say this tonight, two ways to help you understand this. One... Adam is the gardener that God has appointed to do the work of extending the borders of the garden temple. And two, Adam is the vine who is to produce righteous image bearers, who as he and Eve begin to propagate and and they are fruitful and they are multiplying, that vine is spreading out and that they are essentially becoming the garden. That's That is what God is calling Adam to do. Now, again, we know what happens. We know that Adam fails in that task miserably. He fails to be a prophet in ministering God's word to his wife when the evil one comes in. He fails to be a priest in that he doesn't guard the temple from the evil one. He fails to be a king in that he doesn't extend the borders of the garden out and and have righteous offspring that fill the earth. And yet, what's marvelous? What's marvelous about God's dealings with Adam here in the garden is that all of it is preparing us for what Christ is going to do as the last Adam. When I was a very young Christian, I had never thought about this. It's, it's actually remarkable that, that Christ, as the last Adam, begins his suffering in a garden, and he ends his suffering in a garden. Uh, old Puritan Isaac Ambrosi said it was fitting for Christ as the last Adam to go to the garden because a garden is a place where sin was contracted and a garden is a place where Christ would begin to deal with that sin. In the first garden, the first Adam was tempted and led into rebellion. In the last garden, the last Adam obeyed God 
and delivered his people from the rebellion. Um, No, it's interesting, isn't it, when John is giving us that picture of Jesus on that first resurrection day, and Mary Magdalene is distraught looking for him, and she's She's asking the angels, where have you put him? Let me just take his body. And she, she's restless until she can find Christ. And then Jesus appears to her. And John says, she's supposing him to be the gardener. Said, where have you taken him? And there's a very real sense where Jesus is the last Adam, is the heavenly gardener. And Jesus, as the last Adam, is the true vine. Think what he says in John 15. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am the last Adam. Do do you remember in redemptive history, moving from Adam to Christ, right in between, God creates for himself a people in Israel. and, And he says, Israel is my vineyard. Israel is my son. Israel is my vineyard. And yet God said, when I expected my vineyard to bring forth good fruit, I found that it brought forth evil fruit. You see Israel as the the typical son of God and as God's vine that is supposed to be spreading out and filling the earth with righteous image bearers fails in exactly the same way Adam does. So that when Christ comes, he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, every branch that abides in me bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You see, what Jesus is saying is that he came to do what Adam should have done. He came to be that righteous vine that as we are engrafted into him by faith in him, by union with Christ, as we are abiding in him, he is filling the earth with righteous image bearers. You know, there's really this amazing picture of how a theology of Adam in the garden dovetails into what Christ is doing. And and, and it comes to us by means of the botanical imagery in the Song of Solomon. I don't know if you all have read the Song of Solomon recently, but one of the most difficult books to interpret. And yet, if you look for clues in the language in the Song of Solomon, you'll understand that, that what the writer is doing, and presumably it's Solomon, but what the writer is doing is he's reflecting back on God's original purpose of dwelling with his people in the garden sanctuary. Because you'll remember when the temple was built by Solomon, what was carved around the outside of that temple were pomegranates, palm trees, and lilies. And what that entire building was cased in was cedar. And and you're supposed to understand this is botanical imagery. You're supposed to understand when you read in the Song of Solomon that, that the beloved is calling the Shulamite the, the one who receives peace, he's, he's speaking of her under the figure of pomegranates and palm trees and lilies, those things that were carved around the temple. And, and whenever someone in the Old Covenant would have passed by the temple and they would have seen that botanical imagery and they would have seen the vine that wrapped around the doors into the temple, they would have been reminded of the garden and they would have been reminded that God will again come and dwell with his people in a garden in a garden sanctuary. But in order for that to happen, there has to be a second Adam who does what the first Adam failed to do. Um, You see this really in the fullest way at the end of Scripture 
when the Apostle John has those visions of the heavenly temple and it's paradise. It's paradise. And the tree of life is there. Christ is presumably the tree of life. And it's the garden regained and reclaimed. And he is there shepherding his people. He is walking with his people in that garden sanctuary. You see, this is why it's so important to understand what God's intention for Adam was if we're ever to understand what Christ has done as the last Adam. I want to read to you um, just one more section of this passage, and that is this final section. No sooner had Adam created the animals, or named the animals, he didn't create the animals, no sooner had he named the animals, that he realized that there was no one to help him. And God had set that stage so that he could understand that the crown of the creation of Adam was God creating for Adam a helpmate who was suitable to him. And, and that God bringing the woman out of the man was, was the pinnacle, the zenith of what God was doing at creation. Um, you'll notice in verse 21 that Moses tells us the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, Um, God created the marriage ordinance for many reasons at creation. One of those reasons was that it was necessary for man to have companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. God knew that, that he had created people to live in society, just as the triune God lives in fellowship with himself. He created a world in which his image bearers would need that companionship and that fellowship. Uh, God also, because he had purposed to fill the earth with those righteous image bearers, created the ordinance of marriage so that there would be procreation, so that man would be fruitful and there would be multiplication. Um, there are other reasons why God instituted the ordinance of marriage at creation. And yet, when we come to the New Testament, we realize that there is a bigger and more eternal principle. Um, I was reflecting this week on uh, how the the Sadducees didn't understand this when they came to attack Jesus, and they didn't believe in a resurrection. And they said to him, Teacher, you know, a man married this woman, and then he died, and according to the law, his brother should marry her, and his brother married her, and then he died, and... And his brother married her, and he died, and seven of them married her. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? They don't believe in a resurrection. And Jesus says, you do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. Now that means that at creation, God had a very specific purpose in mind. And the Apostle Paul tells us that that purpose is that marriage was to reflect Christ and the church. In Ephesians 5, he says, this is a great mystery, 
but I am speaking of Christ and the church. Jonathan Edwards, in several places, makes the statement that God created the world that he might get a bride for his son. God created the world that he might get a bride for his son. That means ultimately that first marriage is not everything it was intended to be. It was, it was a pointer to something greater. Um, here at creation, Adam is the bridegroom, and he is to love and cherish his bride. And this glorious picture of how God brings her to the man, right? He puts Adam to sleep, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh, and from that rib, God made his bride. Um, I think I mentioned this when we preached through the Gospel of John. Listen to this. Matthew Henry made this observation. He said, Adam was a figure of him that was to come. For out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his spouse, the church, was formed. When he slept the sleep of death on the cross, in order to which his side was opened, there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church, and water to purify it to himself. Isn't that an amazing thought? That when Jesus dies and he is put to sleep in death, God pierces his side and he brings a bride out of his side. I don't think that's illegitimate spiritualizing. Theologians have said this through all of church history. Jesus is the last Adam and everything that God is doing with Adam in the garden is in some way or another preparing us for what the second and last Adam's going to do. Now, what's the cash value? Because you could sit here, you could say, that's all really nice. I've heard some of that. I haven't heard other things. What is the cash value? The cash value is, if you are a Christian, every single thing you need is bound up in the Lord Jesus being the second and last Adam for you. Because what he does is he comes and he undoes what Adam did. When Jesus Jesus lives a life of perfect, unbroken sinlessness, he's not doing it for himself. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Jesus didn't have to be born. Jesus didn't have to be born under the law. Jesus didn't have to live a life of sinless obedience for himself. He did all of that for us. All of that to renew the image of God in us. All of that to restore the righteousness that we lost. And when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry and he underwent those severe temptations of the evil one that, that he would have felt in his holy soul, they, these, were not, these, were not, um, these were not meaningless temptations. These were strategically ordained by God because he is the last Adam. And, and I don't know if you remember, but Mark tells us That little detail that when he was in the wilderness being tempted during those 40 days, Mark says he was with the wild beast. What's the point of that detail? Remember, Adam was in the garden with those tame animals that were brought to him, that he was to have dominion over. Here now, there's an allusion to Jesus entering into enemy-occupied territory to take dominion by his obedient life. He He is regaining dominion 
by obeying where Adam disobeyed. And then he has come as the bridegroom. And you know that this consumed the mind of, the apostle, of John the Baptist when, when he was asked who Jesus was. He constantly said, this is the bridegroom. I'm merely the friend of the bridegroom. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. And Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Why? Because he is the heavenly bridegroom who has come to wed a people to himself for all eternity. Um, What does this do for us practically? Well, I want to suggest tonight that what this does for us when we really get it is it makes us see that every single thing we need is in Christ. Um, This is why when Jesus said, I am the true vine, right after that, and he said, whoever abides in me bears much fruit. He said, without me, you can do nothing. He might as well have said, without me as the second Adam, you can do nothing. Um, I want to encourage you tonight as we just consider this first installment of Christ in the Old Testament that you would reflect on the absolute infinite wisdom of God in so ordering things at creation to serve the purposes of God in redemption for our salvation. Um, Now, I was thinking about it the other day. I would venture to say that most people in churches have never heard these things. And even if you grew up in churches that preach the Bible, were never taught these things. And yet, when the Apostle Paul comes to the very depth of his theology in Romans and 1 Corinthians, this is where he goes. This is is the most essential aspect of understanding Christianity. And there's always so much more about it. There's always so much more about Christ as the second Adam that we can explore as we read Scripture. I want to encourage you as you read the Bible to be thinking about how this sets the stage for everything to come and how God is preparing you to understand more about what you have in Christ as the last Adam based on what he did at creation with the first Adam. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we know that there is so much more um, to the way in which you have constituted the world and what you did at creation with Adam and how you set the stage for what we would need in the last Adam. And we thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are the last Adam, that you are the one who obeyed where the first Adam disobeyed, that you obeyed even to the point of death on the cross. We thank you that you are committed to renewing your image in us. We thank you that you are God's prophet, priest, and king who extends the garden out by redeeming a people and making us fruitful branches in you, the vine. And we thank you and praise you that you are, that you are the great bridegroom of our soul. We do pray that you would make us to understand these things, to believe these things, that you would give us grace to meditate on these things, that you would increase our faith as we see your great wisdom in so ordering these things. And we pray above all things that you would make us to see and feel our absolute dependence upon you. And so, Lord Jesus, would you do this for us? We pray these things in your name. Amen. And as we.